Welcome to Dr. Eric's Relentless Vitality Podcast. Our focus is on optimizing physical and mental vitality, maximizing performance, and extending lifespan. Dr. Eric is a licensed physician with a wealth of expertise in age management and preventive medicine, whose goal is enabling his patients to stay young, feel their best, and enjoy a higher quality of life. Hopefully this works. All right. All right, guys, Dr. Eric, the fitness physician here with another episode of the Relentless Vitality Podcast. I am honored and excited about my guest today, Dr. Herman Pang out of Arizona. So, uh, hey, Dr. Pang, how you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. So um, I don't want to, I'll let you talk on this, but I guess I wanted to give my, my listeners, um, have you give a little intro, but I met Dr. Pang at the World Link Medical Conference years ago, and uh, we've, we've chatted a few times here and there, but this is the first time I've had him on, so I'm excited to hear him talk. So um, yeah, I guess tell everybody, I guess who you are, where you are, what you do, and then we'll uh, get rolling with the fun questions. All righty. So yeah, I'm a Herman Pang and I'm a uh, cardiovascular um, uh, surgeon actually by, by training, but I don't, I don't do surgery now. I haven't been, I've been doing mainly more office work and um, I got into uh, regenerative medicine and also especially hormone replacement therapy starting about 2012, 2011. And it's just been a very exciting part of the practice. Awesome. Awesome. And now you're in what part of Phoenix? Oh, I'm in a, 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 um, a Scottsdale. Scottsdale. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice town out there. It's been a while since I've been out there. We, um, years ago, I went to Scottsdale, but uh, took the family out to Sedona a couple of years ago, went into Phoenix, of course, and then uh, Sedona and, you know, a bunch of, bunch of stuff. So it's beautiful up there. So I love it. It's hot. It's hot. We are still, we had like one of the hottest summers on record um, and it's still hot. We still uh, get to, um, even now we're getting close to a hundred, but uh, at least at nighttime it cools down to the um, to the low seventies. Nice, that's awesome. Yeah, that's uh, that's hot. But of course, everybody always says, right, the dry heat, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that means. It's still hot. It's still hot. All right. So I'm just double checking. I'm gonna do a dual recording here just to make sure uh, make sure we're good. So, all right. So anyway, so I wanted to get into questions. Uh, we, you know, obviously we, our, our audience loves hearing about the you know, health optimization, hormone optimization, uh, you know, et cetera. But obviously I want to definitely want to um, utilize your expertise on uh, from the cardiovascular world. So, um, you know, obviously we talk a lot about uh, health prevention, prevention of cardiovascular disease, especially with the use of hormones, et cetera. So I'd love to hear your take on, I guess we could talk about, you know, uh, maybe testosterone, definitely estradiol in the world of hormones, especially as it relates to cardiovascular health. I know a lot of my patients sometimes are still hearing the good old, good old myths from years ago that, you know, heart, high blood pressure and heart disease, all these things, you know, that can, hormones can cause that. It causes blood clots, it causes heart attacks, causes strokes, all these things. Of course, we know that not to be true, but love to get your take on that. And then I have a couple of very specific questions on estradiol and testosterone when I want to ask you, but I guess maybe just what's your perspective on that in general? Well, absolutely. I think that uh, hormone replacement therapy um, is, is very critical to cardiovascular health. There's been a lot of studies that show that like in men, if you have optimal levels of testosterone and in women, if you have optimal levels of estradiol, it's very cardioprotective. Um, it helps to give you the type of lipid panel numbers that the statins supposedly are trying to get, but 
you know, without the the side effects and without the the harm that statins cause. Um, and the plus, in addition to that, you have all the other benefits. Um, you know, with uh, increase in vitality and and uh, muscle tone and uh, and uh, all kinds of other preventive um, uh, type things. So yeah, it's it, it, in general, it's something that I, um, when I talk to my patients, I try to encourage them to um, try and get optimized and because it, it's, it's better than any other pill you can take. Yeah, sure. And, and, and there's, and I'm not aware of any studies, obviously, and you, you could probably speak to this too with testosterone, obviously it has the FDA black box warning, right? But of course, all the, all the interventional studies have shown that you know, reduced incidence of, you know, CHF, you know, heart failure and heart disease, et cetera. I mean, there's really no, been no harm uh, for administering either of these, uh, correct? Yeah, so the, the uh, black box warning is one of those things that the FDA is required to do. And there, there's a little bit of a, a politics and economics behind it. Um, so when you have people who are trying to maybe restrict the use of testosterone, and when somebody comes up with a um, sort of a gimmicky uh, complication, but you know it gets pushed through the FDA, and then the FDA is required to list it as a black box warning when um, you know all the studies that have ever been done with testosterone um, have never uh, demonstrated any of the things that um, the black box is, is is warning about. So. Right. It's just right. sad. You know, yeah. Economics and politics. Economics and politics. Yeah. Of course, the same thing with estradiol, both men and women, right? Of course, you know, the, the, the synthetic hormones have, can cause blood clots, but oral estradiol has never been shown to cause a clot, to my knowledge, correct? That is absolutely correct. Perfect. I've been, lately, I, uh, I've been digging into, I've been having a lot of fun reading some actually older books, um, on just medical things and hormones in general, reading some of the classics, you know, from the even like the 1800s and early 1900s, like Dr. Broda Barnes and uh, Kenneth Starr, and of course, Jeffrey Dotch, I think is how you say his name, and um, Dr., I think it was, I forget the name now, some a, a German Zimner or something, I forget now, that had a very interesting atlas of endocrinology, which you know has tons of amazing anecdotes and before and after pictures that you just don't see anymore uh, with all the hormones. It's pretty fascinating. It's amazing how much knowledge they had just from, of course, this is before they could do a lot of imaging and lab testing and just like, clinical anecdote, but a lot of them talk about, uh, even with thyroid, how amazing it is and how, how, how pervasive the effects are on the body in terms of prevention of so many things beyond what people think about. Most people think of being tired and overweight, but, you know, things with migraines and menstrual irregularities and cardiovascular disease, you know, talking about how, and I think Dr. Burns even had a book called Solved, you know, Heart Disease Solved, The Mystery Solved because of thyroid and things like that. So do you, do you, you know, What's your take on uh, thyroid and cardiovascular disease in general, and I guess health in general? Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, thyroid is extremely beneficial. Um, you know, uh, uh, of course, the, the best thing is to prevent disease. But when you have disease, I can tell you from my own personal experience when I was doing heart surgery, a lot of times we would have patients who we couldn't get them off the heart-lung machine. Their um, pump function was just um, very marginal. And just giving intravenous T3, uh, it's like rocket fuel. It, it's amazing. Awesome, awesome. Now, do you still do a lot of, uh, you don't do much interventional, are you still doing traditional cardiology practice and inter intertwining out with your hormones or no? Uh, no, yeah, I don't, I don't go to the hospitals anymore. I, I got too busy, I got too old, 
and <laughs> got to the you know too much stress and stuff. So I'm I'm a lot happier now with uh, office based uh, practice. Awesome. Well, do you? Um, I'd love to. I'd love to dig in a little bit on um, cholesterol a little bit. Obviously, there's still a lot of misinformation and confusion. Of course, things are changing all the time. So um, I'd love to talk about you know some of the more advanced. Um, fractionations and lab testing and things like that when we're, you know, working with our patients. And, and of course, I'd love to get your take on statins, you know, when do you use them, when do you not use them? Um, you know, let's, let's kind of dig in on that a little bit. So I'm not sure where you, where you want to start, but we could talk about, of course, the used to be a cholesterol and HDL and LDL, and that was it. Now, of course, we have this, the more specific markers like the small dense LDL, the ApoB, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess, tell me, I guess, from your perspective, from the cardiology and the hormone world, uh, where you, where, how you work up your patients, how you evaluate and treat based on those. Sure. So uh, it, it's been my experience and uh, I, I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for uh, other practitioners, but for me, um, I still start with the very basic lipid panel, looking at total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, the ratios and that kind of stuff. And for, at least in my uh, experience, I would say more than 80% of the patients, if you can get that um, um, uh, corrected, uh, the patients do very well. Now, there's going to be a smaller group, you know, less than 15%, I would say, where they've got some really weird patterns or they're just, you know, they don't seem to respond to um, um, more, you know, uh, usual and conventional testing and methods. And I think in those patients, then looking at things like the um, LDL particle numbers, looking at the APOE, looking at uh, uh, all the other uh, more specific um, uh, denominators, I think is going to be helpful. I don't think that necessarily I would dive into it on every single patient on the first go around. You know, I think that, again, for the vast majority, you can get by with just a pretty straightforward lipid panel. Um, the, the conventional kind, but it's really nice to know that you have these other um, little bit more um, drilled down tests that can help uh, in the management of these maybe more difficult patients. Sure, sure. What uh, is this uh, in terms of like, for example, HDL or uh, I guess what's your, I know that some things have changed over the years. It used to be kind of uh, I guess now we, we focus on that. Obviously, we want people to have an optimal HDL. And that, then I know some people in, in studies have said it's, well, maybe it's not as important as we thought it was. And what's the value of getting that higher in terms of you know, outcomes and cardiovascular disease and things like that? Yeah, so the, um, yeah, it, sometimes it, as we are getting more evidence and, and getting uh, more knowledgeable about it, it does seem to appear that just raising an HDL by whatever means, that doesn't necessarily translate into better results. Um, although I, I still am a little bit um, partial still to, if you can have a, a higher HDL by whatever means, I still think it's probably somewhat protective. But what I do think even more so is that you know, they used to say, well, get a, a, a high HDL, but there weren't any statins that really could raise your HDL. What the statins could do is they could lower your LDL. So then they changed their thinking and says, oh, you got to get your LDL low. And, and if it's, you know, and you're still having problems, you got to get it lower and even lower. And I'm um, absolutely 
in, in this area, I'm absolutely convinced that the LDL is way less meaningful than the HDL. So I think that there, there's a lot of focus on the LDL, but I think that a lot of that's driven by um, the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, obviously, and that was one of my questions to follow up, and I'll get back to HDL in a sec, but I guess in terms of that's my concern is obviously we're focusing, re learning a lot more about the inflammation and the damage, you know, from whatever that may be, from inflammation, physical trauma, et cetera, as a kind of starting the problem. I think the concern is that, well, it's all about cholesterol. We've got to drive it lower, lower, lower. And I think, I don't, I personally don't think that's a good thing to do. And I think you can get your LDL too low because they've, I mean, we've seen the studies where patients that have heart attacks, you know, even up to what, 50% had normal or low LDL. So it's not just the LDL. So I agree. I agree hundred percent, Eric. I think you're, you've hit the nail on the head. I think we focus on the wrong things and uh, it's causing a lot of uh, harm and a lot of havoc for millions of people. Yeah, it's, it's interesting reading a lot about, obviously, we're still learning a lot about the gut, but I think more things are coming out, and at least I'm learning more about uh, the gut and lipopolysaccharides and inflammation, leaky gut, all these different things as, as a, the nidus of inflammation or infection causing these crazy numbers and causing, uh, you know, whether it's in the old, you know, you know, hundreds of years, you know, hundred years ago, they thought it was infection, but they didn't know where it was coming from. So it's probably coming from the gut. So there's some kind of inflammatory process or infection causing the actual injury to the endothelium of the of the coronary arteries and then if their cholesterol can get in there but if it's, there's no inflammation it doesn't really matter too much what your cholesterol is at least exactly exactly okay the other one is i know a lot of people and again this always doesn't come up in everybody you know the kind of the this the i guess the the scourge or the boogeyman of the cholesterol world is like the lp little a which is kind of like nothing you, it's genetic right there's nothing you can do uh, unless you screen for it but you know again i know a lot of even now i hear people saying well there's nothing you can do but, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I originally I thought, I guess, in some of the courses that HDL or HDL and um, niacin can be helpful, not only for HDL, but for LP little a, or is there, is that not accurate anymore? Well, I think, I think the jury's still out on that. Um, I, I know that the, um, several years ago was really in vogue to be uh, focusing on the LP little a. I haven't really seen too much in the more recent literature focusing on that. You know, I think now what I have seen more is focusing more on the, you know, particle numbers and then some of the more um, um, newer tests um, that have uh, been alluded to earlier. So, right, right. Okay. So do you ever, I guess, when would you, and when would you not uh, put a patient on a statin drug? Do you, do you, have you used those in the past or now with your, with your practice? And I, I guess I'd love to hear your take on that. Well, you know, I'm, I've been doing, you know, I've been doing heart surgery since 19, um, 1988. And so at that time, way back before I, you know, I learned more, I mean, I thought, you know, everybody should be on a statin. Statin should be in the water, you know, and, and, you know, everybody over 50 should be on a statin, you know, and that's kind of how I felt at that time based upon what was, you know, taught to me and, and, and uh, so forth. But now uh, that I've gotten more uh, knowledgeable, uh, first of all, I don't put anybody on a statin. I, 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 let, let me rephrase that. I think that there may be a role for a very, very, very small subset of patients um, who will benefit from a statin. But that's an extremely small subgroup. These are the people who have familial hypercholesterolemia and then a few other um, rather bizarre, rather rare conditions, not the normal 
traditional run-of-the-mill um, type of um, a patient that uh, we have in the United States. So for those, that very tiny minority, maybe statins are going to be very useful. But for the vast majority of people, there aren't any studies that have uh, validated this widespread use for statins. I mean, it's, it's strictly coming as a, a, a pharmaceutical push. I was going to say, yeah, definitely the politics and economics definitely come into play there. So, and it, it, it seems to me that it has more of a role as a secondary prevention than primary. Yeah, there were uh, several studies. The, um, uh, the, there were three right off the top of my head. There's the All Hat study, and that study showed that there was no benefit for statin use uh, in uh, primary prevention. There was the uh, PROSPER study, and that study showed that um, people who were over age 70 who did not have evidence of heart disease they showed no benefit uh, for statin use uh, in any sort of uh, primary prevention. And then the, uh, the ASCOT study, that study showed that, uh, especially in women who were taking statins for primary prevention, there was no benefit to be seen. Um, you, it was the same as placebo. So for secondary prevention, it, you know, meaning that you already had a heart attack or you already had an uh, operation or an angioplasty, then there are some studies that would suggest that there's some benefit. Um, but when you start looking at even some of those studies, so many of them were actually funded by the pharmaceutical industry. So you still have to wonder, uh, you know, what's the, what's the truth? <laughs> so... Right. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, if somebody comes to me and they've had an event, a cardiac event, and they're on a statin, I, I, don't, I don't take them off. I leave them on the statin. Sure. You know, that's fine. You know, but I, I don't. But if they ask me, you know, because the vast majority of people that I see haven't had a heart attack. They haven't had surgery or angioplasty. And they're on, you know, huge doses of Lipitor, huge doses of Crestor, you know, Resuvastatin. And they, they don't want to take it. And I said, well, I, I can't advise you not to take it, but it won't hurt my feelings if you don't take it. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, that, I'm glad you brought that up because I see a lot of, and I'm sure you do too, a lot of men who come in for uh, hormone, uh, hormone uh, concerns and, you know, feeling very symptomatic and their, their, their hormones are definitely off. Certainly testosterone, DHEA, and estradiol are all adversely affected. When I look at their medication list, of course, they're on a stat and I'm like, well, that's your problem right there. It's going to drop your levels by half, if not more. And, and you know, like you said, most of them have never had a heart. They said, oh, my doc said my cholesterol is high. I'm like, well, how, how, how high was it? And most of them don't even know. And I'm like, we could probably get you off this. I mean, like you said, I don't want to interfere with another physician's protocols. But I, I kind of tell them, like you said, I, I said, I think if we do these other things, then your need for this statin will probably go away. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you ever... Um, do, uh, do you do a lot of uh, coronary calcium scans for your patients? I, I do if they ask, um, but you know, there are, again, this is kind of like the small subgroup of patients who will benefit from a statin. I kind of think that there's a, a very small subgroup who will benefit from a, a coronary uh, a calcium scan, but you know, uh, I haven't seen, in my experiences, I haven't seen it play such a pivotal role as the people who, um, you know, are necessarily pushing it. So. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, I've read some some interesting studies on it. And it's a, it's a good screen, I guess, to 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 predict future events uh, better than just about anything else out there. At least from from some, what some people say. Again, I'm not sure. I've never really. That's that is true. Yeah, that that that's been promoted. Um, some of the studies that promoted it, I I had a chance to review. Um, again, they're. I'm kind of getting more and more cynical about what's in the literature because like on some of the um, uh, reports that you are maybe referencing where they are pushing the, these uh, calcium scans, again, those um, papers are coming out uh, from the, from the uh, industry. So it's like, well, you know, you're pushing something that's going to benefit you and you make up these reasons why it's so beneficial, but you know, you're a little biased. So sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's why I say if somebody comes and they want to do it, I'm fine. Let's go ahead and do it. I'm not right. going to say no, but I, I don't push it on uh, the regular patients. Can you, is your, do you think it's possible that it would be a, not a good thing to have your, I know uh, at some of the conferences we both attend in, in older patients, I think there's a detriment to having your LDL too low, higher risk of Alzheimer's and things like that. But what about younger patients? The reason I ask is, my, every time I check my cholesterol, I'm always really good, but my LDL is always pretty darn low. You know, it's, you know, I don't even, I can't remember what my last one was, maybe like, I don't know, 50 or 60 or maybe 70 or something like that. And, you know, I've had, you know, we've all had our issues with hormones and things like that. And I'm playing around with things, but I'm always thinking about that in the back of my head. Like, is that too low? Is that a concern? But uh, what's your take on, on LDL being too I low? mean, I, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, okay. I I don't have a strong feeling that LDL is all that important in the first place. So I don't focus therapists on getting that number to a certain point. Um, if it happens to be low, fine. If it's not low, I you know, but everything else is looking good. I don't I don't really worry about the uh, the LDL in that scenario. Um, if if there's a concern that um, um, there there might be an association between a low LDL, you know, and say Alzheimer's, well, you can um, you know obviate that problem by just making sure that your testosterone levels and your estradiol levels are optimal because that's very protective against Alzheimer's. Sure. So then, who cares if the LDL is low? Right. Right. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I know, you know, some time ago, I, my hormones were a bit off too. And I looked at that and I'm like, wow, I mean, it's because my LDL is low. And I'm like, everybody's worried about getting it lower. And I'm thinking, how do I get mine higher? You know, I'm trying <laughs> so the opposite of what everybody else is doing. But do you, do you know much or have any opinion on like some of the protocols? Like, I guess it's more in the, the functional holistic world, but in terms of for prevention of heart disease or, or even healing of heart disease for like, it's been talked about for a long, long time, like things like the Linus Pauling protocol with aged garlic and high doses of, of vitamin C and some amino acids like lysine and proline and things like that. Are you familiar with that at all or have any opinion on that? Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit familiar. I'm not obviously an expert on it, but I have done some reading uh, and a little bit of research on it. And I will tell you that I don't have any problem with vitamin C. Uh, I think vitamin C is a very uh, a good uh, vitamin. In fact, uh, we treat um, uh, we, in my practice, we actively treat COVID-19 patients, but we usually treat them with high dose intravenous vitamin C infusions. So 
you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of uh, vitamin C and some of the other supplements that you mentioned. I think those are all, you know, those are all fine. I think that the, sometimes we have a problem we tend to focus on one little part. You know, we, we look at one uh, uh, piece of the puzzle. We should be looking, instead of at the trees, looking at the forest and um, cardiovascular um, disease prevention is a, a multifaceted, um, um, there's a multifaceted approach to that. I mean, you've got to optimize hormones. You've got to have uh, exercise as part of it. You've got to have a good diet. Supplements are going to be beneficial, you know, and, and even when you do all of that, sometimes just genetics and fate, I mean, you, you, sometimes you still have a bad outcome. So you can't control everything, you know, that you might want to control. But I think that it, if you focus on just one thing, I don't, I think you, are doing yourself a, a, a disservice. I think you need, need to look at the whole picture. You know, patients need to be encouraged. You got to exercise. Well, doctor, if I just optimize my hormones, you know, isn't that good enough? No, you, you need to exercise on top of that. You need to, no, you can't go to McDonald's and eat five Big Macs. You've got to have a healthy diet. That's all part, you know, part of the um, prevention plan. For sure. No, I agree. I tell my patients that all the time. I say, I don't have a magic pill. You know, I will optimize your hormones, but you've got to do the work. You've got to eat right. You've got to exercise. And I give them actionable tips on what to do and what to change. And I tell them, I said, you've got to do this or we're not going to move forward. So I agree 100%. Excellent. Excellent. Um, speaking of testosterone, this is something I've, I've tried to, to get some information. I can't find much, but I know, um, you know a lot of people, especially with men, for example, you know, whether, you know, most of my men are doing subcutaneous testosterone when they're on to, but some do topical. And I know Neil's a big proponent of the topical. I, one of my, uh, one of my mentors some time ago, and I put it in a, I read it somewhere that with the topical, there's some concerns about causing some endothelial problems and concern for future cardiovascular issues. But I, when I try to search for things in the literature, I can't really find much on that. Is, do you, are you aware of anything with, with that because of the DHT levels of causing vascular issues or no? So um, that's a very, very interesting um, um, question that you pose, Eric. So if, if you look back at the history of, you know, how the benefits came to be, you know, back many decades ago, how they did it was uh, strictly, you know, a, a weekly IM injections, which, you know, th there are and a lot of people still do the uh, once a week injection. Now there are problems with that, but even with the problems uh, that uh, are associated with that, once a week injections of testosterone in virtually all of the studies showed tremendous cardiovascular benefit and protection. Mm -hmm. Now, what's happened is that as we understand the pharmacokinetics uh, better, we realize that you get the uh, um, uh, peaks and valleys with the once a week. And, you know, to kind of fast forward um, through a lot of the research, once they developed the um, uh, carrier that could actually go through the skin and you could do a transdermal application, then your, um, your levels tend to be very stable. They don't fluctuate very much. So you don't get the peaks, you don't get the valleys. It just stays at a constant level, which, probably is even more beneficial. There aren't a lot of uh, 
randomized controlled trials, though, obviously looking at uh, that, that uh, means. There were a lot of trials looking at uh, the once a week IM injections. That's a lot easier to control, I think, you know, from a, there are a lot of variables and stuff that would go into it, and it, that's easy to control. I think uh, it, it's going to be very virtually impossible to do a RCT with transdermal uh, testosterone, just, I think, from, from a very, from a practical point. So sure. I don't know if I answered your question, but um, the, as far as the DHT, the, yeah, there are some studies that would suggest that if you had really high levels, they're associated with um, harm. The problem, though, is that um, DHT um, is, in, in many respects, is exactly like testosterone and prostate cancer. There's this thing called the saturation model where, yes, you can get, a, a for instance, with uh, testosterone and prostate cancer, as you increase your level of testosterone, you can increase your PSA, which would imply a growth of the prostate cancer, but that's only until you get to a level, a serum level of about 200 to 250. Once you get above that serum level, you don't have any further increase in PSA. Same thing is true for DHT. From, a, uh, from nothing to a little bit, you will get a rise in DHT, but once you get to that um, a very small level, it's saturated, the, the, re, the hair follicle receptors are saturated, and you don't get any more uh, effect of DHT. No, that's perfect, that's perfect. Um, Let's talk about, I'd love to talk a little bit uh, about estradiol, uh, for sure, both men and women. Um, you know, before, you know, I guess I want to talk about, and you've got some personal experience, obviously, with this. I don't know if you're, if you're comfortable talking about that or not, as it relates to not only heart, but prostate, et cetera. But one, one question I'd love to get your perspective, and I think I threw this out there on our, on our forums, and I've been trying to find some research on it, too, is uh, estradiol in terms of fat loss, visceral fat loss, abdominal fat loss, even... Uh, any you know lower abdominal fat loss, et cetera, oral versus transdermal. I know some studies have said um, you know that the transdermal is better because of the oral estradiol metabolites, et cetera. Even like I think Dr. Hertog has got over in the I think Belgium or something. He's got generations of, of family members who've been treating this for, for you know hundreds of years, and that's what he recommends. But obviously, I know Neil talks always more about the oral, uh, especially in women. So, and I guess not as much a, a big deal with men because most of them are on testosterone, but for especially female patients that are trying to lose that abdominal fat, um, trying to advise them of, of oral versus estradiol specifically for that. Obviously we know oral is much better for cardiovascular health and osteoporosis, breast cancer prevention across the board general in general better, but in, specifically for fat loss, what's, what's your, uh, do you have any uh, knowledge of studies or personal anecdotes or anything on that? Yeah, it's interesting that you bring this up. I just gave a, a mini hormone lecture uh, three days ago, and I referenced several um, 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 articles, kind of older articles, um, but the one that I'm thinking about uh, happened at uh, the Oregon Health Systems or something universe. Anyway, what they did was they were looking at central obesity in women. Okay. Um, and um, what they gave was just oral estradiol, and the the, the Reader's Digest version was uh, by giving the oral estradiol the visceral fat 
diminished significantly in these uh, women who were uh, postmenopausal. Uh, and they had some theories on why that occurred, um, but basically, uh, I think that's that's already one. It's an older article, but it's still a good article. Um, and there are several others that are similar, um, talking about uh, the uh, because I, I I'm trying to think what what harm would there be from oral administration of estradiol you will get the first pass effect from the liver, which creates this terrified fatty acid esters, which we know are very beneficial to prevent the heart disease. But I'm not aware of any other metabolites that would cause an increase in visceral fat. You know, I think it's only a decrease. So, but I think you would get that either with oral or transdermal. The only problem with transdermal is that you now have um, you you forego the cardiovascular uh, benefit, but but you'd get all the other benefits. Just you wouldn't get the cardiovascular benefit. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I have one patient in particular. I've had struggle getting uh, her levels up to where they need to be with oral, and I switched it to the form from MedQuest because I I heard it was better bioavailability. But the transdermal seemed to get her levels up better. But I actually have her on a combination of transdermal and oral, and finally got to where we need to be. It took a while, but. Man, yeah, that's a, that's I have a, a few patients similar where they're on a, a combination uh, oral and transdermal because one, you know, the oral just wouldn't get it up there. I, I have a, a few patients similar to, to yours and that's what I've done. And now you get levels that, you know, close to 80 to 100. And so pretty happy with that. Yeah, yeah, and this is the same patient also has issues with oral, or oral progesterone getting levels up there. So I think I'm going to add a sublingual because for whatever reason, her gut's just not getting it up. And I hate to keep increasing her dose and take multiple pills every night. So that was a thought. Exactly, yeah, yep. I have a few of those also. So good job. I've done a lot of uh, talks on, on Instagram and YouTube and uh, with myself and a, another colleague of mine who I'm partnering up with on a few few ventures, but we've... <laughs> hammered in the good old estradiol and men talk because of course we still get a lot of the guys you know coming around with the old anathema of, of it and I know I think the world's kind of turned its corner even the, in the even in the kind of the bodybuilding world and the the bro sciences are kind of realizing the benefits of it in men but I still get some people uh, pushing back with you know it doesn't help it it makes me fat you know I'm having these symptoms etc cetera, etc cetera. but I, I guess maybe you could talk on that and maybe your personal experience with oral estradiol, I know of a few physicians who are actually, even men, uh, taking it for cardiovascular health. And obviously we could talk about prostate issues too. We could, whatever you want to talk or not talk about with your experience, because I know yours is quite extensive. Yeah, so I, I have no problem. So I was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2016. And uh, long story, had a bunch of uh, uh, procedures to try and eradicate the cancer, was never quite successful, had a lot of um, shall we say, interesting <laughs> complications that I, I shared with uh, uh, um, uh, many physicians at the Hormones and Beyond Symposiums. In any event, uh, a few years ago then, uh, Dr. Rousier, uh, who's been helping me with my cancer, suggested to go ahead and try the oral estradiol since the other uh, ablative procedures that I tried just, for me, just they didn't work. So uh, we started that and um, one of the um, uh, one of the things that happens when you take the estradiol, and for this, it doesn't have to be oral; it could be transdermal. It doesn't really matter. But the uh, estradiol uh, drops your PSA. So I had an elevated PSA, and it, and it dropped uh, basically down to zero. Um, 
And then as an aside, I went ahead and checked lipids. Neil said to check my lipids and lo and behold, my HDL is like 80, my LDL is like 45, my total okay. cholesterol is uh, you know, 130. So, and of course I'm, I'm not taking statins, I'm not a believer in statins. So I was um, very pleasantly surprised at the um, very nice lipid picture that happened after taking the oral estradiol. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's good to hear for sure. For sure. Yeah, I know. I know a couple other people have, have mentioned that too, in terms of, you know, like you mentioned, men taking oral estradiol, not just for prostate, because, uh, but for, um, you know, for cardiovascular, you know, prevention and health, etc. too. But I, I will have to make one caution is that, um, you know, we have a very strange, um, litigious medical legal world that we're currently in and so i would be i, I would caution that uh, for the a majority of men that i see and that i treat i would not prescribe estradiol i would make sure that testosterone is optimized you know and only in those rare situations where um, you know they're still having ongoing issues and making sure that I have a really good uh, physician-patient relationship uh, uh, with that gentleman. Only in those more rare conditions would I recommend then starting oral estradiol. Now, sure. if they have prostate cancer, that's a whole different ballgame. I don't think there's going to be any issues if, if the decision is made not to go with conventional therapy, but to think of more unconventional and in that scenario, I think giving estradiol would be okay, but I wouldn't just reach into the box and just start with estradiol. Somebody who has, you know, dyslipidemia and say, oh, here, let me start you on, uh, you know, two milligrams of oral estradiol. I think you're setting yourself up to uh, be crucified. And, yeah. and I, would, I would caution against that. Oh, sure. Yeah. I have no plans to do anything like that unless it's, you know, a family member or something like that. Like you said, with men, I think, you, like you said, you, if you tweak their testosterone, your estradiol will come around all, all on its own for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Now, are you doing much uh, lifestyle management with your patients in terms of like uh, you mentioned, you know, hormones and beyond, which I went to last year and I've been doing recommending things like, you know, diet interventions and uh, intermittent fasting protocols and things like that. Are you doing much, much a lot of that with your patients as well? Yeah, a lot of patients, um, uh, they do see uh, weight loss once we optimize hormones, but some people, they really need you know, more help than, than, or they want the results faster maybe than, because you know, when you optimize hormones, and, but if you're you know, hugely overweight and you got really bad metabolic syndrome, I mean, it still takes a few years to really see significant weight reduction. So for those people who, you know, I'm maybe more concerned, or maybe they've got, um, they're not, they're not happy with what they're seeing thus far, because it's not going fast enough. So then uh, I'm going to tell you, I, I would have them read uh, Jason Fung's The Obesity Code, and have him get started on intermittent fasting, right? I think there's, a, there's clearly a role for that. And I think it's very beneficial. So that would be the other part uh, that I would, you know, recommend outside of, you know, diet and, and exercise. I agree. I agree. Do you, do you have a lot of, I, I'm the same way with my patients. I'm always talking about fasting protocols and not, not that it's for everybody. Some people don't have to, but uh, it's certainly a, a great tool to have. Uh, 
Sure. I, I absolutely agree. Yeah, yeah. It's it's been it's been wonderful. Do you have a lot of uh, diabetic patients in your clinic, or patients you've actually been able to get off their insulin or other diabetic medications by by doing what we do? Yes, absolutely. It's I don't have that many diabetic patients, but I would say the ones that I do have, at least half have been able to, if, if not get off, their diabetic medications have been able to, you know, uh, reduce or discontinue some of them. So yeah, it's been, it's, it's been pretty impressive. It's, it's been a real game changer. Yeah, that's excellent. That's excellent. I don't have a lot either. I have, I know there's a couple that I have and one actually has a pump and, I'm, and my goal, I know it'll probably take a few years. I'd love to get them off that pump. <laughs> so There you go. Good for you. Good for you, Eric. We'll see. It's going to be a challenge. <laughs> So anything else from your experience in the cardiology world and hormones that you'd love to like to touch on or any myths you'd like to dispel that, that you've heard or seen or? Well, no, I just, I think not on specific hormones per se, but I do think that it's important for the, um, the listening audience to understand that uh, all because somebody says something doesn't make it true. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of uh, economics and politics out there, and a, and and the pharmaceutical industry they hate hormones. You can't um, patent them. Uh, you can only patent synthetic uh, hormones. You can't patent, you know, n- normal bioidentical hormones. You're not allowed to. So therefore, you can't make any money. So it's in their best interest to put these myths and these lies out there, so that people don't do uh, the bioidentical because they don't make any money. I think if people understand that, then they tend to be more receptive and they tend, because it takes a, a while, let's face it, this confirmational bias, if, you know, if somebody told you, you know, something, you know, whatever the lie was, you know, years ago, and it's been repeated and repeated and repeated, then when you, Eric, or I come along and we tell them something totally different, it's like, no, you're, you're strange. You're weird. Right. But it, that's where, so I think it, you're going to have to take some time and you're going to have to educate and be patient, you know, and um, you know, some people you're never going to be able to convert, but I think with time you, you'll be able to get the vast majority to understand um, some of the, the, uh, the economics and politics that are behind a lot of the myths. Yeah, for sure. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I bring that up a lot too. And I've actually, you know, tried to spread that to my patients say, hey, you know, the world of compounding is unfortunately in danger because it, it's such a benefit. Um, and as you mentioned, economics and politics, you know, Big Pharma and the FDA, they are paying the societies to come out with these studies, you know, making it look like bioidenticals are bad because like you said, they can't make any money off of it. Um, so nobody really understands that some, a lot of people do, but I'm trying to spread the word about, Hey, take action, write your senators, write your congressmen about, you know, helping us out because they're trying to, you know, shut down the compounding pharmacies and that would be terrible for our patients. And they're the ones that are going to suffer. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I try to spread the word. I'm sure you are as well. What, uh, any, any, uh, upcoming challenges or big projects that you have in the next uh, few months or this year that other than just work at the, I've got to tell you this, this COVID-19 put a crimp into a lot of the, you know, plans and, and stuff that I was, you know, wanting to do. And, you know, uh, the, the, I guess the silver lining is that COVID-19 forced all of us to rethink how we help and take care of patients 
it forces us to rethink how we market, how we, you know, uh, get the word out there. So that's been a good thing, but it, it, there's no doubt it certainly has cost, <laughs> cost has thrown a monkey wrench into the, the, a lot of the uh, plans that I've had. So. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, will you be, uh, and I know you obviously go to um, a lot of lectures and presentations and give some yourself at Worldlink. Any other conferences that you, you're attending this year or plan to attend other than Worldlink or those the main ones? Yeah, th those are the main ones. Um, and like I was saying, because we've had to rethink how we do a lot of things, uh, the uh, BHRT courses that uh, Worldlink puts on that you know Neil um, lectures at. So because we do um, now virtual, and I would say over half of the people who sign up, they do it by virtual. They don't actually uh, attend. So with the Zoom feature, there's a question and answer. And so um, people will be constantly asking questions all throughout the day. Well, it, it, we sort of figured out, Neil doesn't have time to lecture and there are people in the room who ask questions and as well as answer the online questions. So um, I was asked to, if, if I could help out. So I actually go to all the BHRT courses and I'm the one who's actually typing in the vast majority of the answers to the questions that come up, right. you know, so. Yeah, I was, I did the virtual part too. Again, I've done it before, but, and I, I, I saw you answering a lot of the questions and uh, I'll probably do redo, you know, part three in the spring. I didn't have time to do it this month, but I prefer to just to go because I not just to, to be there, but I like to just network and talk to other folks. So hopefully we Absolutely. can get more people doing that. Yeah. Well, one last, I want to be cognizant of your time and cut, uh, and we'll, we can always do a part two if you're up for it. But uh, I always like to ask to all my uh, my guests any uh, any non medical uh, books or things that you're reading right now. I love non medical. Well, it, in whatever spare time that I have, which is like hardly not at all, then you know, then I I tend to read. Um, I do some reading, you know, some novels like uh, uh, mysteries and stuff. I I tend to read. So, um, but I mean, I I have that time is so <laughs> minute and so precious. But yeah, I mean, I and the the other thing that I I kind of like to do that is not really answering your question, but when I have a chance, I, I like to cook. So oh, yeah. I will, yeah. So I will, you know, find some interesting recipes and I'll, you know, take some time in my day and usually on the weekends and I'll try and cook something just because, Hey, you know, if, if it doesn't turn out, you just throw it away. It's not like, you know, you killed anybody or anything. So yeah. Yeah. You have any favorite dishes that you've come up with or you like to eat? Uh, mainly Italian. I like uh, to do Italian dishes and stuff. Awesome. But, uh, awesome. I understand that. My wife's Italian, so I I, I, I love it. But unfortunately, I've, I've had to give up gluten recently, so it's it's hard for me to eat a lot of that stuff anymore. <laughs> so anyway, well, good. Well, I appreciate your time. I guess we could talk offline for a minute after I uh, end the show here. But uh, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. Maybe we can get you back on for a part two at some point. Thank you.